Section 1 of The Genealogy of Morals by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Horace B. Samuel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Church. First Essay Good and Evil, Good and Bad. Part 1. 1. Those English psychologists who up to the present are the only philosophers who are to be thanked for any endeavor to get as far as a history of the origin of morality. These men, I say, offer us in their own personalities no paltry problem. They even have, if I am to be quite frank about it, in their capacity of living riddles, an advantage over their books. They themselves are interesting. These English psychologists, what do they really mean? We always find them voluntarily or involuntarily at the same task of pushing to the front of the partie honteuse of our in inner world and looking for the efficient, governing, and decisive principle in that precise quarter where the intellectual self-respect of the race would be the most reluctant to find it, for example, in the vis inertiae of habit, or in forgetfulness, or in a blind and fortuitous mechanism in the association of ideas, or in some factor that is purely passive, reflex, molecular, or fundamentally stupid. What is the real motive power which always impels these psychologists in precisely this direction? Is it an instinct for human disparagement, somewhat sinister, vulgar, and malignant? Or perhaps incomprehensible even to itself? Or perhaps a touch of pessimistic jealousy? The mistrust of disillusioned idealists who have become gloomy, poisoned, and bitter? Or a petty subconscious enmity and rancor against christianity and plato that has conceivably never crossed the threshold of consciousness or just a vicious taste for those elements in life which are bizarre painfully paradoxical mystical and illogical or as a final alternative a dash of each of these motives a little vulgarity, a little gloominess, a little anti-Christianity, a little craving for the necessary piquancy. But I am told that it is simply a case of old, frigid, and tedious frogs crawling and hopping around men and inside men, as if they were th as thoroughly at home there as they would be in a swamp. I am opposed to this statement. Nay, I do not believe it. And if, in the impossibility of knowledge, one is permitted to wish, so do I wish from my heart that just the converse metaphor should apply, and that these analysts with their psychological microscopes should be at bottom brave, proud, and magnanimous animals, who know how to bridle both their hearts and their smarts, and have specifically trained themselves to sacrifice what is desirable to what is true, any truth, in fact, even the simple, bitter, ugly, repulsive, unchristian, and immoral truths, for there are truths of that description. 2. All honor, then, to the noble spirits who would fain dominate these historians of morality, but it is certainly a pity that they lack the historical sense itself, that they themselves are quite deserted by all the beneficent spirits of history. The whole train of their thought runs, as was always the way of old-fashioned philosophers, on thoroughly unhistorical lines. There is no doubt on this point. The crass ineptitude of their genealogy of morals is immediately apparent when the question arises of ascertaining the origin of the idea and judgment of the good. Man had originally, so speaks their decree, 
praised and called good altruistic acts from the standpoint of those on whom they were conferred that is those to whom they were useful subsequently the origin of this phrase was forgotten and altruistic acts simply because as a sheer matter of habit they were praised as good came also to be felt as good as though they contained in themselves some intrinsic goodness the thing is obvious this initial derivation contains already all the typical and idiosyncratic traits of english psychologists we have utility forgetting habit and finally error the whole assemblage forming the basis of a system of values on which the higher man has up to the present prided himself as though it were a kind of privilege of man in general this pride must be brought low this system of values must lose its values is that attained now the first argument that comes ready to my hand is that the real homestead of the concept good is sought and located in the wrong place the judgment good did not originate among those to whom goodness was shown much rather has it been the good themselves that is the aristocratic the powerful the high stationed the high-minded who have felt that they themselves were good and that their actions were good that to say of the first order in contradistinction to all the low the low-minded the vulgar and the plebeian it was out of this pathos of distance that they first arrogated the right to create values for their own profit and to coin the names of such values what had they to do with utility the standpoint of utility is as alien and as inapplicable as it could possibly be when we have to deal with so volcanic an effervescence of supreme values creating and demarcating as they do a hierarchy within themselves it is at this juncture that one arrives at an appreciation of the contrast to that tepid temperature which is the presupposition on which every combination of worldly wisdom and every calculation of practical expediency is always based and not for one occasional not for one exceptional instance but chronically the pathos of nobility and distance as i have said the chronic and despotic esprit de corps and fundamental instinct of a higher dominant race coming into association with a meaner race an under race this is the origin of the antithesis of good and bad the master's right of giving names goes so far that it is permissible to look upon language itself as the expression of the power of masters they say this is that and that they seal finally every object and every event with a sound and thereby at the same time take possession of it it is because of this origin that the word good is far from having any necessary connection with altruistic acts in accordance with the superstitious belief of these moral philosophers on the contrary it is on the occasion of the decay of aristocratic values that the antithesis between egoistic and altruistic presses more and more heavily on the human conscience it is to use my own language the herd instinct which finds in this antithesis an expression in many ways and even then it takes a considerable time for this instinct to become sufficiently dominant for the valuation to be inextricably dependent on this antithesis as is the case in contemporary europe for today the prejudice is predominant which acting even now with all the intensity of an obsession and brain disease holds that moral altruistic and disinteresse are concepts of equal value three in the second place 
quite apart from the fact that this hypothesis as to the genesis of value good cannot be historically upheld it suffers from an inherent psychological contradiction the utility of altruistic conduct has presumably been the origin of its being praised and this origin has become forgotten but in what conceivable way is this forgetting possible as perchance the utility of such conduct ceased at some given moment the contrary is the case this utility has rather been experienced every day at all times and is consequently a feature that obtains a new and regular emphasis with it every fresh day it follows that so far from vanishing from the consciousness so far indeed from being forgotten it must necessarily become impressed on the consciousness with ever-increasing distinctness how much more logical is that contrary theory it is not truer for that which is represented for instance by herbert spencer who places the concept good as essentially similar to the concept useful purposive so that in the judgments good and bad mankind is simply summarizing and investing with the sanction its unforgotten and unforgettable experiences concerning the useful purposive and the mischievous non-purposive according to this theory good is the attribute of that which has previously shown itself useful and so is able to claim to be considered valuable in the highest degree valuable in itself this method of explanation is also as i have said wrong but at any rate the explanation itself is coherent and psychologically tenable four the guidepost which first put me on the right track was this question what is the true etymological significance of the various symbols for the idea good which have been coined in the various languages i then found that they all led back to the same evolution of the same idea that everywhere aristocrat noble in the social sense is the root idea out of which have necessarily developed good in the sense of with aristocratic soul noble in the sense of with a soul of high caliber with a privileged soul a development which invariably runs parallel with that other evolution by which vulgar plebeian low are made to change finally into bad the most eloquent proof of this last contention is the german word schlecht itself this word is identical with schlecht compare schlechtweg and schlechterdings which originally and as yet without any sinister innuendo simply denoted the plebeian man in contrast to the aristocratic man it is at the sufficiently late period of the thirty years war that this sense becomes changed to the sense now current from the standpoint of the genealogy of morals this discovery seems to be substantial the lateness of it is to be attributed to the retarding influence exercised in the modern world by democratic prejudice in the sphere of all questions of origin this extends as will shortly be shown even to the province of natural science and physiology which prima facie is the most objective the extent of the mischief which is caused by this prejudice once it is free of all trammels except those of its own malice particularly to ethics and history is shown by the notorious case of buckle it was in buckle that the plebeianism of the modern spirit which is of english origin broke out once again from its malignant soil with all the violence of a slimy volcano and with that salted rampant and vulgar eloquence with which up to the present time all volcanoes have spoken five with regard to our problem which can justly be called an intimate problem and which elects to appeal to only a limited number of years 
it is of no small interest to ascertain that in those words and roots which denote good we catch glimpses of that arch trait on the strength of which the aristocrats feel themselves to be beings of a higher order than their fellows indeed they call themselves in perhaps the most frequent instances simply after their superiority and power for example the powerful the lords the commanders or after the most obvious sign of their superiority as for example the rich the possessors that is the meaning of aria and the iranian and slav languages correspond but they also call themselves after some characteristic idiosyncrasy and this is the case which now concerns us they name themselves for instance the truthful this is first done by the greek nobility whose mouthpiece is found in theognis the megarian poet the word esthlos which is coined for the purpose signifies etymologically one who is who has reality who is real who is true and then with a the subjective twist the true as the truthful at this stage in the evolution of the idea it becomes the motto and party cry of the nobility and quite completes the transition to the meaning noble so as to place outside the pale the lying vulgar man as theognis conceives and portrays him till finally the word after the decay of the nobility is left to delineate psychological noblesse and becomes as it were ripe and mellow in the words kakos and in dylos the plebeian in contrast to the agathos the cowardice is emphasized this affords perhaps an inkling on what lines the etymological origin of the very ambiguous agathos is to be investigated in the latin malus which i place side by side with melas the vulgar man can be distinguished as the dark colored and above all as the black haired hich niger est as the pre-aryan inhabitants of the italian soil whose complexion formed the clearest feature of distinction from the dominant blondes namely the aryan conquering race at any rate gaelic has afforded me the exact analogue finn for instance in the name fingal the distinctive word of the nobility finally good noble clean but originally the blond-haired man in contrast to the dark black-haired aboriginals the celts if i may make a parenthetical statement were throughout a blonde race and it is wrong to connect as virchow still contends those traces of an essentially dark-haired population which are to be seen on the more elaborate ethnological maps of germany with any celtic ancestry or with any admixture of celtic blood it is in this context it is rather the pre-aryan population of germany which surges up to these districts the same is true substantially of the whole of europe in point of fact the subject race has finally again obtained the upper hand in complexion and the shortness of the skull and perhaps in the intellectual and social qualities who can guarantee that modern democracy still more modern anarchy and indeed that tendency to the commune the most primitive form of society which is now common to all the socialists in europe does not in its real essence signify a monstrous reversion and that the conquering and master race the aryan race is not also becoming inferior physiologically i believe that i can explain the latin bonus as the warrior my hypothesis is that i am right in deriving bonus from an older duonus compare bellum duellum duenlum in which the word duonu appears to be to be contained bonus accordingly as the man of discord of variance in duo as the warrior 
one sees what in ancient rome the good meant for a man must not our actual german word gut mean the godlike the man of godlike race and be identical with the national name originally the noble's name of the goths the grounds for this supposition do not appertain to this work six above all there is no exception though there are opportunities for exceptions to this rule that the idea of political superiority always resolves itself into the idea of psychological superiority in those cases where the highest caste is at the same time the priestly caste and in accordance with its general characteristics confers on itself the privilege of a title which alludes specifically to its priestly function it is in these cases for instance that clean and unclean confront each other for the first time as badges of class distinction here again there develops a good and a bad in a sense which has ceased to be merely social moreover care should be taken not to take these ideas of clean and unclean too seriously too broadly or too symbolically all the ideas of ancient man have on the contrary got to be understood in their initial stages in a sense which is to an almost inconceivable extent crude coarse physical and narrow and above all essentially unsymbolical the clean man is originally only a man who washes himself who abstains from certain foods which are conducive to skin diseases who does not sleep with the unclean women of the lower classes who has a horror of blood not more not much more on the other hand the very nature of a priestly aristocracy shows the reasons why just at such an early juncture there should ensue a really dangerous sharpening and intensification of opposed values it is in fact through these opposed values that gulfs and are cleft in the social plane which a veritable achilles of free thought would shudder to cross there is from the outset a certain diseased taint in such sacerdotal aristocracies and in the habits which prevail in such societies habits which averse as they are to action constitute a compound of introspection and explosive emotionalism as a result of which there appears that introspective morbidity and neurasthenia which adheres almost inevitably to all priests at all times with regard however to the remedy which they themselves have invented for this disease the philosopher has no option but to state that it has proved itself and its effects a hundred times more dangerous than the disease from which it should have been the deliverer humanity itself is still diseased from the effects of the naivetes of this priestly cure take for instance certain kinds of diet abstention from flesh fasts sexual continence flight into the wilderness a kind of weir mitchell isolation though of course without that system of excessive feeding and fattening which is the most efficient antidote to all the hysteria of the ascetic ideal consider too the whole metaphysic of the priests with its war on the senses its enervation its hair splitting consider its self-hypnotism on the fakir and brahman principles it uses brahman as a glass disc in obsession and that climax which we can understand only too well of an unusual satiety with its panacea of nothingness or god the demand for a unio mystica with god is the demand of the buddhist for nothingness nirvana and nothing else in sacerdotal societies every element is on a more dangerous scale not merely cures and remedies but also pride revenge cunning exultation love ambition virtue morbidity further it can fairly be stated 
that it is on the soil of this essentially dangerous form of human society the sacerdotal form that man really becomes for the first time an interesting animal that it is in this form that the soul of man has in a higher sense attained depths and become evil and those are the two fundamental forms of a superiority which up to the present man has exhibited over every other animal seven the reader will have already surmised with what ease the priestly mode of valuation can branch off from the knightly aristocratic mode and then develop into the very antithesis of the latter special impetus is given to this opposition by every occasion when the castes of the priests and warriors confront each other with mutual jealousy and cannot agree over the prize the knightly aristocratic values are based on a careful cult of the physical on a flowering rich and even effervescing healthiness that goes considerably beyond what is necessary for maintaining life on war adventure the chase the dance the tourney on everything in fact which is contained in strong free and joyous action the priestly aristocratic mode of valuation is we have seen based on other hypotheses it is bad enough for this class when it is a question of war yet the priests are as is notorious the worst enemies why because they are the weakest their weakness causes their hate to expand into a monstrous and sinister shape a shape which is most crafty and most poisonous the really great haters in the history of the world have always been priests who are also the cleverest haters in comparison with the cleverness of priestly revenge every other piece of cleverness is practically negligible human history would be too fatuous for anything were it not for the cleverness imported into it by the weak take at once the most important instance all the world's efforts against the aristocrats the mighty the masters the holders of power are negligible by comparison with what has been accomplished against those classes by the jews the jews that priestly nation which eventually realized that the one method of effecting satisfaction on its enemies and tyrants was by means of a radical transvaluation of values which was at the same time an act of the cleverest revenge yet the method was only appropriate to a nation of priests to a nation of the most jealously nursed priestly revengefulness it was the jews who in opposition to the aristocratic equation good equals aristocratic equals beautiful equals happy equals loved by the gods dared with a terrifying logic to suggest the contrary equation and indeed to maintain with the teeth of the most profound hatred the hatred of weakness this contrary equation namely the wretched are alone the good the poor the weak the lowly are alone the good the suffering the needy the sick the loathsome are the only ones who are pious the only ones who are blessed for them alone is salvation but you on the other hand you aristocrats you men of power you are to all eternity the evil the horrible the covetous the insatiate the godless eternally also shall you be the unblessed the cursed the damned we know who it was who reaped the heritage of this jewish transvaluation 
in the context of the monstrous and inordinately fateful initiative which the jews have exhibited in connection with this most fundamental of all declarations of war i remember the passage which came to my pen on another occasion beyond good and evil aphorism one ninety five that it was in fact with the jews that the revolt of the slaves begins in the sphere of morals that revolt which has behind it a history of two millennia and which at the present day has only moved out of our sight because it has achieved victory eight but you understand this not you have no eyes for a force which has taken two thousand years to achieve victory there is nothing wonderful in this all lengthy processes are hard to see and to realize but this is what took place from the trunk of that tree of revenge and hate jewish hate that most profound and sublime hate which creates ideals and changes old values to new creations the like of which has never been on earth there grew a phenomenon which was equally incomparable a new love the most profound and sublime of all kinds of love and from what other trunk could it have grown but beware of supposing that this love has soared on its upward growth as in any way a real negation of that thirst for revenge as an antithesis to the jewish hate no the contrary is the truth this love grew out of that hate as its crown as its triumphant crown circling wider and wider amid the clarity and fullness of the sun and pursuing in the very kingdom of light and height its goal of hatred its victory its spoil its strategy with the same intensity with which the roots of that tree of hate sank into everything which was deep and evil with increasing stability and increasing desire this jesus of nazareth the incarnate gospel of the love this redeemer bringing salvation and victory to the poor the sick the sinful was he not really temptation in its most sinister and irresistible form temptation to take the tortuous path to those very jewish values and those very jewish ideals has not israel really obtained the final goal of its sublime revenge by the tortuous paths of this redeemer for all that he might pose as israel's adversary and israel's destroyer is it not due to the black magic of a really great policy of revenge of a far-seeing burrowing revenge both acting and calculating with slowness that israel himself must repudiate before all the world the actual instrument of his own revenge and nail it to the cross so that all the world that is all the enemies of israel could nibble without suspicion at this very bait could moreover any human mind with all its elaborate ingenuity invent a bait that was more than truly dangerous anything that was even equivalent in the power of its seductive intoxicating defiling and corrupting influence to that symbol of the holy cross to that awful paradox of a god on the cross to that mystery of the unthinkable supreme and utter horror of the self-crucifixion of a god for the salvation of man it is at least certain that sub hoc signo israel with its revenge and transvaluation of all values has up to the present always triumphed again over all other ideals over all more aristocratic ideals nine 
but why do you talk of nobler ideals let us submit to the facts that people have triumphed or the slaves or the populace or the herd or whatever name you care to give them if this has happened through the jews so be it in that case no nation ever had a greater mission in the world's history the masters have been done away with the morality of the vulgar has triumphed this triumph may also be called a blood poisoning it has mutually fused the races i do not dispute it but there is no doubt but that this intoxication has succeeded the redemption of the human race that is from the masters is progressing swimmingly everything is obviously becoming judaized or christianized or vulgarized what is there in the words it seems impossible to stop the course of this poisoning through the whole body politic of mankind but its tempo and pace may from the present time be slower more delicate quieter more discreet there is time enough in view of this context has the church nowadays any necessary purpose has it in fact a right to live or could man get on without it queritur it seems that it fetters and retards this tendency instead of accelerating it well even that might be its utility the church certainly is a crude and boorish institution that is repugnant to an intelligence with any pretense of delicacy to a really modern taste should it not at any rate learn to be somewhat more subtle it alienates nowadays more than it allures which of us would forsooth be a free thinker if there were no church it is the church which repels us not its poison apart from the church we are like the poison this is the epilogue of a free thinker to my discourse of an honorable animal as he has been given abundant proof and a democrat to boot he had up to that time listened to me and could not endure my silence but for me indeed with regard to this topic there is much on which to be silent ten the revolt of the slaves in morals begins in the very principle of resentment becoming creative and giving birth to values a resentment experienced by creatures who deprived as they are of the proper outlet of action are forced to find their compensation in an imaginary revenge while every aristocratic morality springs from a triumphant affirmation of its own demands the slave morality says no from the very outset to what is outside itself different from itself and not itself and this no is its creative deed this volte face of the valuing standpoint this inevitable gravitation to the objective instead of back to the subjective is typical of resentment the slave morality requires as the condition of its existence an external and objective world to employ physiological terminology it requires objective stimuli to be capable of action at all its action is fundamentally a reaction the contrary is the case when we come to the aristocrat's system of values it acts and grows spontaneously it merely seeks its antithesis in order to pronounce a more grateful and exultant yes to its own self its negative conception low vulgar bad is merely a pale late-born foil in comparison with its positive and fundamental conception saturated as it is with life and passion of we aristocrats we good ones we beautiful ones we happy ones 
when the aristocratic morality goes astray and commits sacrilege on reality this is limited to that particular sphere with which it is not sufficiently acquainted a sphere in fact from the real knowledge of which it disdainfully defends itself it misjudges in some cases the sphere which it despises the sphere of the common vulgar man and the low people on the other hand due weight should be given to the consideration that in any case the mood of contempt of disdain of superciliousness even on the supposition that it falsely portrays the object of its contempt will always be far removed from that degree of falsity which will always characterize the attacks in effigy of course of the vindictive hatred and revengefulness of the weak in onslaughts on their enemies in point of fact there is in contempt too strong an admixture of nonchalance of casualness of boredom of impatience even of personal exultation for it to be capable of distorting its victim into a real caricature or a real monstrosity attention again should be paid to the almost benevolent nuances which for instance the greek nobility imports into all the words by which it distinguishes the common people from itself note how continuously a kind of pity care and consideration imparts its honeyed flavor until at last almost all the words which are applied to the vulgar man survive finally as expressions for unhappy worthy of pity compared dylos dylaios poneros mokthaeros the latter two names really denoting the vulgar man as labor slave and beast of burden and how conversely bad low unhappy have never ceased to ring in the greek ear with a tone in which unhappy is the predominant note this is a heritage of the old noble aristocratic morality which remains true to itself even in contempt let philologists remember the sense in which oitsuros anolebos klemon dustekain xumora used to be employed the well-born simply felt themselves the happy they did not have to manufacture their happiness artificially through looking at their enemies or in cases to talk and lie themselves into happiness as is the custom with all resentful men and similarly complete men as they were exuberant with strength and consequently necessarily energetic they were too wise to dissociate happiness from action activity becomes in their minds necessarily counted as happiness that is the etymology of oi pratain all in sharp contrast to the happiness of the weak and the oppressed with their festering venom and malignity among whom happiness appears essentially as a narcotic a deadening a quietude a peace a sabbath an enervation of the mind and relaxation of the limbs in short a purely passive phenomenon while the aristocratic man lived in confidence and openness with himself Geneos, noble-born emphasizes the nuance sincere and perhaps also naive the resentful man on the other hand is neither sincere nor naive nor honest and candid with himself his soul squints his mind loves hidden crannies tortuous paths and back doors everything secret appeals to him as his world his safety his balm he is past master in silence in not forgetting in waiting in provisional self-depreciation and self-abasement a race of such resentful men will of necessity eventually prove more prudent than any aristocratic race it will honor prudence on quite a distinct scale 
as in fact a paramount condition of existence while prudence among aristocratic men is apt to be tinged with a delicate flavor of luxury and refinement so among them it plays nothing like so integral a part as that complete certainty of function of the governing unconscious instincts or as indeed a certain lack of prudence such as vehement and valiant charge whether against danger or the enemy or as those ecstatic bursts of rage love reverence gratitude by which at all times noble souls have recognized each other when the resentment of the aristocratic man manifests itself it fulfills and exhausts itself in an immediate reaction and consequently instills no venom on the other hand it never manifests itself at all in countless instances when in the case of the feeble and weak it would be inevitable an inability to take seriously for any length of time their enemies their disasters their misdeeds that is the sign of the full strong natures who possess a superfluity of moulding plastic force that heals completely and produces forgetfulness a good example of this in the modern world is mirabeau who had no memory for any insults and meannesses which were practiced on him and who was only incapable of forgiving because he forgot such a man indeed shakes off with the shrug many a worm which would have buried itself in another it is only in characters like these that we see the possibility supposing of course that there is such a possibility in the world of the real love of one's enemies what respect for the, his enemies is found forsooth in an aristocratic man and such reverence is already a bridge to love he insists on having his enemy to himself as his distinction he tolerates no other enemy but a man in whose character there is nothing to despise and much to honor on the other hand imagine the enemy as the resentful man conceives him and it is here exactly that we see his work his creativeness he has conceived the evil enemy the evil one and indeed that is the root idea from which he now evolves as a contrasting and corresponding figure a good one himself his very self end of section one recording by geoffrey church